Hello and welcome to the latest Employment Law podcast from Stevenson Harwood's employment team. As you know, you can subscribe to the whole series on iTunes and Stitcher or by visiting our website, which is www.shlegal.com. My name is Paul Reeves and I'm a partner in the Stevenson Harwood employment team. With me today is Katie Carr, a senior associate in our team. You may have caught our podcast back in July about reforms to the existing IR35 regime in the private sector, which come into force from April next year. With the budget delayed and the general election before Christmas, many are wondering whether the reforms will be delayed. There's no indication that this will be the case. The IR35 changes will most likely be included in the spring budget and swiftly pushed through as planned. Therefore, it's crucial that businesses take steps now to prepare for the changes. With that in mind, today we're going to cover the following topics. We're going to take you through the background to the reforms, explain how the new regime will work in practice, consider how businesses should assess whether IR35 applies to their contractors, and discuss ways businesses can prepare for the reforms. Katie, do you want to start off by running us through the background to these reforms? Let's start with the existing IR35 regime. This is not a new tax. IR35 was introduced in April 2000, and the new rules are intended to encourage compliance with those existing rules to make sure those affected pay the right tax. IR35 applies where an individual provides services via an intermediary, where if they had been engaged directly, they would have been an employee for tax and national insurance purposes. The intermediary is usually a personal services company in which the worker has a material interest, which means they hold more than 5% of the shares. Before IR35 was introduced, workers could avoid being taxed as employees by providing services through a personal services company and receiving dividends rather than salary. The purpose of the IR35 legislation was, therefore, to ensure that workers through personal service companies, working like employees, pay broadly the same employment taxes as employees. If the person is a genuine independent contractor and does not fall within the IR35 regime, then they will not need to apply PAYE to fees that are received by a personal services company. Currently, in the private sector, the personal service company is liable to self-assess whether or not the payments received for the individual services are caught by the IR35 rules. From April 2020, the burden for compliance will shift. The end-user client will become responsible for deciding whether or not an engagement comes within IR35, and the business that contracts with the intermediary, or the fee payer, will be responsible for deducting income tax via PAYE and national insurance. That's right, Katie. And I think it's also worth mentioning that similar rules already exist in the public sector and have done so since about April 2017. So what we've got now from April 2020 will be the same regime just rolled out to the private sector. The legislation is still in draft form, but broadly, from next April, the client must assess, using what's known as reasonable care, whether any contractors with whom they engage even through a supply chain, will be employees for tax purposes if engaged directly rather than through a personal service company. This status determination, as it's known, and the reasons for it must be passed directly to the worker and also passed on by the client down the labour supply chain to the entity which ultimately pays the personal services company. The fee payer or worker is entitled to make representations to the client challenging the status determination which must be dealt with within 45 days. However, there is no independent appeals process if the status disagreement process does not resolve matters. If the end-user client makes a determination which the contractor disagrees with, then there is no real comeback for them. They either accept it or cease engaging with that client. The government has stated that 
HMRC will not get involved in any such disagreements, as it would not be workable for them to provide decisions in real time, which would obviously have an impact on the flexibility of the workforce. A further point to note is that failure by the client to comply with its obligations as regards the status determination may make it liable for employee income tax and national insurance if IR35 applies. There's also a risk under the new rules of a client becoming secondarily liable for an entity further down the supply chain failing to meet its IR35 obligations and in particular to account for tax and national insurance. HMRC regards this strict secondary liability as a way of ensuring that the client does proper due diligence on their supply chain. The government has yet to publish detailed regulations dealing with this secondary liability, but it has indicated that the main focus of these rules will be situations where there is tax avoidance by an entity in the labour supply chain rather than non-tax motivated insolvency. In the event that the client contracts directly with a personal service company, they must operate PIYE and pay national insurance. But where there is a supply chain, then it's the entity that pays the personal service company that has responsibility for deducting the tax and national insurance. These are onerous obligations for clients who engage a large number of contractors, either directly with their personal service companies or through third-party service providers or agencies. Some have indicated that they will not engage contractors through personal service companies to avoid their obligations regarding status determinations and negate the risk that they will become liable for income tax and national insurance for contractors in the event of any failure in the supply chain by simply only engaging contractors who are on their payroll or that of a service provider. I think it's also worth noting at this point, Katie, that there is uh, what's known as a small companies exemption. So what do we mean by small company exemption? The existing IR35 regime will continue to apply to them, i.e. the small companies, and individual contractors will still determine their own IR35 status in such circumstances. The Companies Act definition of a small company will be used, meaning that an end user will be small if it meets two of the following three criteria. Number one, turnover of not more than £10.2 million. Number two, a balance sheet total of not more than £5.1 million. And number three, not more than 50 employees being engaged by that small company. For unincorporated entities, only the turnover test will apply, so that only those with a turnover exceeding £10.2 million will be within the scope of the reforms. There is no requirement for the end user to advise the individual contractor as to whether they are a small company or not. This is apparently because the government does not wish to cause any administrative burden for small businesses. So turning to the application of the new rules, the main problem for businesses engaging with contractors will be the practical difficulty in applying the very fact-sensitive test at the heart of IR35. Namely, would the relationship between the worker and the client have been an employment relationship if it had been a direct relationship with no intermediary involved? There's already been considerable litigation on this topic, with individual cases proving unreliable precedents because they turn heavily on their particular facts. The factors HMRC will look at will include personal service, whether the worker is entitled to provide a substitute to do the work, which may point away from an employment relationship. It will also look at whether there is mutuality of obligation. In an employment relationship, there must be an obligation on the part of the worker to provide his or her work or skill, and an obligation on the part of the engager to pay the worker for that service. There's no mutuality of obligation if the individual does not have to turn up to work and or the engager does not have to offer work if it's not available. 
HMRC will also look at the right of control. An employee must be subject to a certain degree of control by the engager. This control may take the form of the way in which the worker performs their services, what tasks have to be performed, and when and where they must be performed. And finally, HMRC will also look at the economic reality of the situation. They'll look at who provides the equipment, who takes the financial risk, the manner and timing of payments, the duration of the engagement, and the level of integration of the contractor into the business. Naturally, companies should not be hitting the panic button at this time and assume that all freelancers fall within IR35. Instead, companies should ask searching questions to determine risk in this area. All these questions and more will go to build up a picture of the true status of any individual. The legal test is multifactorial and is not binary. Whilst it may be tempting to simply decide all contractors are within IR35, such a blanket determination may not satisfy the reasonable care requirement as set out under the legislation. In March 2017, HMRC released an online employment status service tool called Check Employment Status for Tax or CEST, C-E-S-T, which provides HMRC's view on whether the IR35 regime applies to a particular engagement. Now, CEST has been widely criticised as being too simplistic, insufficiently fact-sensitive and does not cater for the sheer diversity of contractor roles and that there is an over-reliance on the right of substitution. In response to this criticism, HMRC is committed to making further improvements to CEST and will launch an enhanced version of this toolkit before the end of the year. However, it remains questionable whether a one-size-fits-all online tool will really give a conclusive answer for what may be a specialist technical role in the private sector. So Katie, what do you think will be the impact of IR35 reforms on the private sector? Well firstly, it's important to note that HMRC have confirmed that reform is not retrospective. As was the case in the public sector, HMRC will be focusing on ensuring businesses comply with the reform for new engagements rather than focusing on historic cases. Organisations' decisions about whether contractors are within the rules will not automatically trigger an inquiry into earlier years. That said, HMRC has recently sent letters to around 1,500 contractors at Glaxo asking them to check whether they are compliant with IR35. Now that might be part of a wider investigation and enforcement activity, or it may just be a shot across the bows to make sure contractors and businesses are gearing up for the reforms. I think it's fair to say that end-user clients are likely to be cautious in their approach. Whilst wanting to retain the flexible workforce, they will not want to risk the potential tax bills, penalties and legal costs of HMRC later challenging the IR35 assessment. Only the most clear-cut engagements will be judged as operating outside IR35. End-users will also be more interested in the compliance of their supply chain, given the risk that liability could end up with them in the event of failings in that chain. Unfortunately, contractors are likely to seek higher daily rates to compensate for the increased tax burden they will face. This is going to increase the wages bill considerably, but the risk of not paying more is the loss of the best talent. Some end-users may stop hiring contractors and engage all their staff directly as employees and only operate PAYE. The likes of Barclays, Lloyds, HSBC, Morgan Stanley have all announced a limited company contractor cull and they may be the authors of their own misfortune in so doing. By taking such a stance, they're ultimately passing their highly skilled contractors to competitors who are willing to embrace the IR35 reform. Companies that are willing to work with contractors to preserve their self-employed status may well reap the rewards of the best available talent, which could make or break some businesses. 
The need for flexibility will become all the more important depending on the impact of Brexit, when employers may need to cut their workforces and wish to avoid the process and costs of implementing redundancies. So although we've said that companies shouldn't hit the panic button, it is obviously sensible to start planning for the approaching reforms next April. And it's our advice that businesses need to act sooner rather than later in this respect, because before we know it, we'll have had the general election, maybe Brexit, and then this date will be upon us. It may be labour-intensive and time-consuming to identify which individuals and intermediaries might be caught by the rules, but it's a task that's worth doing sooner rather than later so that you are not caught out. And in any event, we would expect this exercise to be concluded by the end of February to give you time to prepare before the new tax year. In preparation for this, we've set out 10 steps that businesses should start to consider in preparation for next April. So number one, they should be carrying out an audit on the contractual population within their business and identify which contracts may still be in place post April 2020. Number two, determine how you will assess the employment status of each off payroll worker to ensure that they have a clear and consistent methodology. The best strategy is to do so on a case by case basis. So the explanatory notes and other comments from HMRC state that end users will have an obligation to take reasonable care when making assessments. Blanket determinations, as we've already discussed in this podcast, may well be subject to challenge and open the end user to liability. Number three, you should be carrying out employment status determinations on all your contractors and notifying them of that outcome sooner rather than later in case there's an appeal by the contractor. Number four, ensure that you've got a clear communication plan in place. Uh, next, we'd advise that you review your internal systems such as payroll, booking systems, process maps, HR and onboarding policies to see if any of these need to be changed in light of what is coming next April. Next, you should be amending all existing contracts with off-payroll workers and ensure that all new contracts are drafted to anticipate the new rules. Contracts may need to be changed to take account of the new rules. For example, will there be a need to contain a power to deduct income tax and national insurance? and appropriate tax indemnities if they do not exist at present. Number seven, renegotiate the rates paid to those off-payroll workers that you want to retain, but this may lead to an increase, particularly for those that you want to retain to compensate them for the impact of IR35. Next, where businesses use supply chains, end users will need to ensure that suppliers are reputable and compliant. You may also wish to renegotiate commercial terms with such suppliers, for example, the use of indemnities or withholding part of the payments due pending demonstration of compliance with the new IR35 regime. Number nine, we'd also advise that end users also plan for dealing with appeals against the status determination assessments that we've already covered in this podcast. And finally, end users might wish to consider alternative engagement models, for example, engaging contractors as employees, engaging contractors through umbrella companies, or ensuring contractors do not come within IR35 rules by changing the way they work, e.g. providing for a right of substitution, allowing them to set their own hours and place of work, the structure of contracts by reference to the project, or a specific piece of work rather than based on duration. All of the above we can help with, so please do get in touch if this is an issue that impacts your business. So that's our roundup of the new off-payroll working rules. Thank you all for listening. And just a reminder that you can listen again to our podcast and subscribe to the whole series on iTunes and Stitcher or by visiting the Stevenson Harwood website. Mm-hmm.